I think people expect, and you know this, and you know the pressure from this, uh, people expect people who say they believe in Jesus and are Christians to act differently, don't they? So, you know, sometimes some of us have felt terrible when somebody's come up to us afterwards and said, that wasn't very Christian, was it? And sometimes it was because of maybe a misunderstanding on their part as to what it means to be Christian or not. But other times it's sometimes because we're sort of not as different as we wish we were. Sometimes we get snagged up with the mood and the our old ways of what it used to look like for us to live before we knew Jesus. But the thing that we've been realising as we've been going through the book of Philippians, I think, is that actually the, the changes that happen predominantly when you put your trust in Jesus and you become one of his people are not so much on our outward behaviour, although that is the end result, but the, the change ultimately is on the inside. You get a reorientation of values and a change around. We've been seeing, I suppose, that, and I said this a couple of weeks ago, that so often when you become a believer, when you put your trust in Jesus and you experience his work in your life, it's not just that your actions change. Remember we said this the other week? It's that your reactions change. The way you respond to whatever comes at you, the way that you face situations and circumstances. We've seen Paul doing that, haven't we? We've seen the fact that when circumstances didn't look uh, favourable, he was able to stand back and almost rise above his circumstances and situations because he had confidence in the sovereignty of God. And in the same way, as they face suffering and struggling and persecution, rather than hitting back, rather than shaking the fist at God, there'd been a confidence and a change that the Lord would be with them. And now we're at a point where basically there's grief in the church. There are people in church who don't get on. That never happened to Well, it certainly happens amongst the elders. I'll tell you that at the very least. So maybe, I mean, you lot must rise above it. But amongst the elders, there's times when we've been ready to lamp one another. But, yeah, yeah, it's normal church life, isn't it? So, the gospel is telling us, the news here is that actually, as you experience more of Jesus in your life, the way you react to situations that are difficult will become more and more um, changed. And we find here in verse 5, can you look at, look at that down at verse 5? Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. He's not saying screw yourself up and really try hard to be a nice person. No, he's saying that actually, in fact the, the ESV version, Sui's got one of those versions of the Bible, she, we call it the clever version, slightly more literal and it's helpful in this, and it says, um, let this mind be among you that is yours in Christ Jesus. It's as if there's a new way of looking at life, values, yourself, God, the universe, and others. And it's yours when you become a follower of Jesus. It's as if something gets done within you. And there's, a, there's an immediate change and then an ongoing change. So let this mind be yours, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then, I mean, it's helpful here. It's modelled after Jesus Christ himself. If you have a brush with Jesus... It will change you. And so now, what we're going to do is look at, the Apostle Paul goes and says, right, okay, let's show it to you. Let's show you how you work. And there's a sense in which, what we're going to look at today, I don't think can leave you unaffected. So rather than say, right, be different, what he does is he just, he's going to say something, and by the end of it, if we receive it in, you will be changed on the spot. You'll be changed on the spot. Your heart will be changed on the spot. And the routine is going to be doing one of these 
sort of like, you know, we're, we're all into the interviews on telly, you know, where you get some big star and you have the, the big sort of reveal and they ask them all the questions, you know, sort of thing that Piers Morgan does with something like Cheryl Cole or something like that, and you get, get to hear all about who they are, what they're like, and what motivates and what drives them. Well, we've got one of these spots just here, but it's not Cheryl Cole and it's not somebody else, it's not Oprah, it's not anybody like that. It's the Lord Jesus, it's God himself, okay? So I'm just going to read it, and then we're going to break it down and see, and as we see this, not interview, but this, this insight, as we go into the mind of God, you won't be able to stay the same. That's what Paul said. So let's read it again. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So as we look into this, I've just broken it down into four things. Who, it, who he is, what he did, why he did it, and what the results are. Okay, you got that? Who Jesus is, what Jesus did, why Jesus did it, and what the results are. So very quickly, here we go. Number one, who Jesus is. Answer, he's God, I tell you. I can go now. But no, it's not as simple as that, is it? We, we have to go a little bit deeper and actually work this one in and think about the implications of what it means. There's, <coughs> there's been some confusion being pumped out in the media le- lately. Who t- did anybody read the book or see the film of the D- Da Vinci Code? Yeah, and the basic idea behind it was that actually, uh, if you look into history, what you'll find is that uh, ideas that we have in church and in the Bible about Jesus were made up in the 4th century. And people, in order to get power over other people, um, mixed up this book, messed with it, um, and actually if you trek back you'll find that the original followers of Jesus just thought he was a good moral teacher. They certainly didn't think, um, he didn't ask to be communicated and thought of as God. Um, the people around him didn't think he was God. He was just a good guy who was pointing people in the right direction. And the problem is, I mean that sounds fine, but the, problem, the only problem with that is the Bible. Because the Bible and the evidence we've got from closer to the time and closer to the dates would say totally different. The fact is we have evidence and sections from these bits of the Bible and other bits of the New Testament that date back way before the first century and tell the exact same message that is being found here. Look what it says in verse 6. He is God, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Some people look at Jesus and they say, well he never really thought he was God. Well, you go through the gospel records and, well, he did all the sort of things that God would expect, you'd expect God to do. He received worship. When Thomas fell down and said, my Lord and my God, he didn't say, get up quickly, no, 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 you're mistaken. He effectively was going, bad time too. He offered, to, offered forgiveness. The only person who can offer forgiveness is God. He would do the stuff that God did. He would calm the storms. He would feed the 5,000. He would do all the kinds of things that the God of the Bible has always done. So much so that there is a first century, sorry, there is a a modern Jewish scholar who's not a believer, isn't a big fan of Jesus, uh, but he wrote a commentary on Jesus because he realised how important that had been for the the Jewish nation. His name's um, Jacob um, Neusner. 
And this is what he wrote. I want to say to Jesus, when I see how he thinks and acts, who do you think you are, God? Answer, uh, yeah, that's the whole point. And here we find in this letter, the Apostle Paul, writing probably 20 years after, 25 years possibly after uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus, is showing that the early believers, they thought the same too. Jesus was worshipped as God. Look at this, the way it's set out. Most of the scholars and people who know more about the Bible than I do think that this was some sort of hymn that was in circulation, a little bit like... You know, if I start singing, amazing, great, you know, Dave's getting ready to come in with the next line. Because it was something that was in common currency. It was around. And here we've been told, at the start of their, hy- their hymn, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now I, need to, I want to just totally convince you of this, okay? That phrase there, it says, being in very nature God, or if you look, you see there's a little A there, can you see the, it gives you a footnote at the bottom. Whenever the NIV, the New International Version, is a little bit, wants to make sure it's extra clear on what the words mean, it gives you a footnote at the bottom, and an alternative sort of word that's used for it. Who being in very nature God, or who being in the very form of God. Now I, need, I want to be clear on this, when we think of form, we think of outward stuff, don't we? So, you know, Mark looks at Emma in view of the wedding coming up and goes, she's so beautiful in form. Well, what he means by that, he's like, hubba hubba, she's gorgeous. But talking outside, yeah, not to mean put you on the spot, but get used to it if you're coming in to live up here. Okay? Uh, it's, you know, when we say the form, we think outward. But it's the Greek word, morphe, and that doesn't talk about outwardness, it talks about inwardness, your, your, your inward stuff. So actually when Mark next goes, Emma, you're beautiful in form, what he's saying is, I think you're a wonderful person. And you need, to, need a hairdo or something, I don't know. Yeah. He's saying, he's saying, the stuff, your inside, what you are in essence, the substance of you. And here we're being, being simply told, in blunt, Jesus is of the same stuff of God. It's not outward, it's inward. It's those qualities that make something what it is, and with the strongest possible statement here, Jesus is, has identical qualities that make God, God. He convinced. You say, Steve, why are you labouring the points? Because it's incredibly important. If Jesus isn't God, then he can't save us from our sins. Because only God is sinless, and only he can pay the price. Only a sinless one can be offered as a sacrifice for sin. If Jesus isn't God, no salvation. Very important. But I want to drive it a little bit further. Just in case you're not convinced, look there. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now that word grasped or exploited, it carries the idea of you've got something in your possession, but you don't don't feel the need to keep on grabbing a hold of it and polishing it and bringing it up to the surface. You see? So what, what, what's the, what, why am I saying this then? It, it, what it means is that this is, um, he didn't suddenly become God. Being God is something that he has always, always had since eternity to eternity. He, he, didn't, he, sort of, he didn't sort of um, become God when he became human. No, from all eternity he has been God and then to his, his divinity he has added humanity. We'll come to that in the beginning, uh, in a minute. So, it's not like he suddenly became God. He was God, he is God, um, and he's not gone after it. So, in other words, when you look at Jesus, he's not just a mere moral teacher, 
But from 25 years after his death and resurrection, he was being worshipped as God since he was God. Do you reckon I can move on yet? Of course not. Imagine the quality of his life to persuade of all people the first century Jews who from that high had been taught there is one God and he's transcendent in his Lord and he's over all things the idea that you could persuade them that God had come in the flesh can you imagine how much evidence they would have wanted stacked up can you imagine the quality of his life needed to persuade the people not just to, you know, not to hoodwink them They'd have been, imagine his presence Imagine his gentleness, his love, his tenderness, his authority, his clarity. Imagine that it just would have been amazing to have been around him. In fact, you don't need to imagine, because actually, back in that word grasp, it tells us something. It tells us if he was God but did not grasp after it, what it tells us is that he had power, he had authority, he had position, but he didn't lean on it. He didn't use it for his benefit. He did not come and say, I'm God, bow down. He came and all of his godness he used to serve those around him. No wonder he was beautiful to them. No wonder they wanted to be near him. And we do the exact opposite, don't we? Any vestige or slight hint of an ability or an opportunity or a connection or a bit of luck that we have, what's our first thought? Use it for other people? No. Our first thought is, right, for me. So if I get good exam results, I'm going to use my good exam results, not for God, but for me. If I've got time for use, the first thing I ask myself is, how can I use it for me? If I've got money or I get a, a tax rebate or I get some unexpected funds, what's my first thought? Use it for me. If I've got relationships or a good sense of humour or opportunities in the workplace or a promotion, what's my first instinct? Not to honour God and serve other people with it, but to use it for me, to grasp onto it, to exploit it, to use it for me. And Jesus would have stood out a mile. Because he was the only one who had everything, but the only one who had everything used what everything he'd got, not for his benefit, but for the benefit of others. Do you see that? He didn't use it to further his own goals merely. He used it to serve and be gracious to others. So, hold on, where's me a little bit? I've lost my notes here. Where's my notes gone? Hold on one minute. Bear with me. I've got something I wanted to read to you, a quote from what somebody said, and I don't want to lose it. Oh, here we are. This one guy wrote this. He said, think of any human organisation. Think of a company or a school or a hospital. You got one in mind? The idea is that you get promoted. You have more people under you by doing your cleaning, by filling your position and by pushing on. But the higher you go, the more you become someone who is to be served. Do you get that idea? You get position. You move up to another grade. You get to hold out your rights and say, I should have a bigger office. I should have better equipment. I should get a nicer car. I should be getting more pay. Now I'm the manager. Now I'm in charge. You see, human nature sees position as something to be grasped and exploited for our benefit. What can we get out of it? And that is the contrast here with the Lord Jesus. He says, I'm going to use all my godness. I'm going to use all my godness for you. And don't we love him for it? 
It makes all our petty chasing and our selfishness look a little bit silly, doesn't it, really, compared to that. He was God forever, and he used his godness, not to grasp after it for himself, but to serve. So that's firstly, who is, who is Jesus? Well, he's God, and it's great to look at. Secondly, what did Jesus do? Well, let's read it in verse 7. But made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So as I hinted at a minute ago, he didn't add his divi- to his div- divinity... Hold on, I've got this right. He added to his divinity his humanity. He didn't do a swap. It wasn't that at one minute he was God, and then the next minute he became man. No. Being God, he also added to his godness his humanity. And it says here, he emptied himself. And imagine how restrictive that must have been. Is there anybody here who would like to become a carrot? Some of you, the way you sit there, it makes me wonder. And still. You see, there's orders of life, aren't there? So if you grab a rock, um, life is all about how much you can respond to your environment. A rock can't respond to its environment. It's a victim of its environment. Agreed? A pebble, something like that. Okay? Next up the pecking order, you've got some sort of plant life. Whereby if a plant, a plant can respond, can't it? Because it feels gravity, it senses light, and it grows a little bit. Yeah? But in terms of its awareness to its environment, that's about the limit of it. Then next up from a pebble to a plant, the next thing up is an animal. So, you know, little spot the dog, can, it can sense danger. It is aware of its environment. It can um, make choices about what will be most to its um, advantage. Is a is spot the dog aware of eternity? Does it look up at the stars and go, wow, this is a big world, I wonder where I've come from? No, spot the dog doesn't, because the next order up is humanity. And whereas spot the dog might have five senses, like we do, um, spot the dog doesn't have the next level up, which is an awareness of the eternal, an awareness of meaning and value. Spot the dog doesn't sense injustice, we do. So here you go, you've got pebble, carrot, um, spot the dog, us, and then in the Bible there's a whole different set of reality and experience and order of being. It's called God. And if we've got five senses, he's got 5,000 senses. And when he sort of in, in responds to a, um, the environment, can you imagine? It, it would be a little bit, I mean, well, we can't imagine. Can a rock imagine being spot the dog? It can't, can it? can't even think of it, can't even conceive of it. And poor Spot the dog couldn't imagine being a rock. But could you imagine what it means for the one with 5,000 or more senses, who everything explodes into colour and experience and everything, Godness, and what's he about to do? He's about to come a human being. He's going to move, it would be the equivalent of us moving from us to becoming a carrot. Can you imagine Einstein becoming a carrot? I think you might complain after a while and say it's a little bit restrictive. Don't you know what you're missing out on? But here we're told, what's the verse? But he made himself nothing, you better believe it, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness, in human form. He did not stop being God, but he emptied himself of the significance, the status, and so many of the privileges, options of being divine. He restricted them. He said, I will be a human. And that's why in verse 7, when did he use his 
divineness as a human, but we track through the gospel, the only times he does is when he's serving other people. So all through the gospel we've got moments where he allows his divinity to break out of his humanity. And people's lives get put back together. People get healed. People can see. People get welcomed. People get made new. He brings hope. He revives. He cleanses. He restores. That's what happens when uh, divinity clothed in humanity starts breaking out. But the point here is that it was always for other people. He didn't grasp onto it. He didn't come and say, I'm superhuman. Watch me in my red pants fly through the sky. He never needed to walk anywhere. But he did. And this is the nature of God. He became a servant. He didn't become servile, but he became a servant. At the heart of all his actions were the good of others, and it cost him. And we talk about this quite a lot at church, don't we? We talk about how if you come near to Jesus, you've tasted the beauty of how he gave his life for others. We, t- we use that phrase sometimes, don't we? He lived my life for yours. And when you see him, you love him, don't you? When you see him in action, you think, he's the kind of person I want to be around. He's not the kind of person I want to be like. It was interesting just hearing, when I was away yesterday off speaking, I, I rang up Jane while I was on, I was on my hands free, don't worry, driving up, I was driving through the cloud and the rain and the mist and the fog and it's horrible. And I heard a, ta- a tale of how one nasty little individual spitefully was in part of her in part of her potty training was taking poo and scraping it around the various furniture items and coming painfully close to licking it up and I and I heard of somebody who had the option leave her in her squalor or say I will go into the danger zone and I will lay aside my preferences, which is to kick back with a nice book and have a bit of hot chocolate, and I will go and help them out of their mess. I will scrape it up, even at great cost to my, that's my senses. And I don't know why you're laughing, because she did it for you too. And that is the, that's the mindset of a servant. My life for yours. And Jesus came, and this is what he did. This is God's. I need to drive this home to you because I've been so struck by it that this isn't me. And I wish it were. And it's not you. And I pray, God, that you wish it were. But this is something to be pursued, okay? He became a servant. He lived for me. Occasionally what I will do is I will serve somebody. Uh, Some of you may have been on the receiving end of my service. But there's a different thing, it's a different thing altogether from going, I'll live for myself, follow my agendas, and then every now and again, what I'll do is I'll step out of that, help people and serve them. But when I've got to the end of it, the end of my tether, and I can't be bothered anymore, and it's just they're not very appreciative, what I'll do is I'll step back into living for me. And I dare to say, and I love you guys, and I hope you guys love me, and we're a church together, and we're all struggling with this, but that is the mood. That's the thing we've got to fight against. Jesus was not an occasional servant. He, wasn't, he didn't do service. He was a servant. It was a, state, uh, a statement. He said, I am now going to live as a servant. And when you've, when you've trusted in Jesus, that's the way you're going to push and the way you're going to try to be. I will be sacrificial for the good of others all the time, as best I can, as much as the Lord gives me strength. But the problem is, what gets in the way of this? And I was trying to think for you how to be as helpful for you as possible on this. What is it that gets in the way of us doing that. Why don't we live like that? Because we can see the value. What inside of us 
what, why do we kick up and, and respond and kick against it? Well, I think it's very simple, and this passage shows us, because what we do is, by nature, when you've walked out on God, and while you've still got sin left in your heart, you sort of live the reverse of Jesus. You, your humanity is broken, and it's an uphill battle. What do I mean by the reverse of Jesus? Well, let's go through this passage. Though I am not God, I think equality with God is something to be grasped. I'm just speaking about me here, but it could ring true for you too. So I want to make the rules by myself. I want to big up myself. I want my life to be about me. I don't want to serve people. I want a life of ease with people serving me. I want recognition, accomplishment, security and glory. Now that's me. That's Steve Casey. That's me apart from Jesus Christ. That is what I will do and I'll do persuasively, winsomely, cunningly and I can make it even look spiritual as I try and do it. But apart from Jesus Christ, that's my mindset. Grasp after being God and try and manipulate everybody else to serve me. And then I meet with Jesus and he forgives me of my sin and the, the odiousness of that. And he says, now, begin the process of being transformed now into my likeness so you flip it all around again. And I will complete that job in eternity when you meet. So I am somebody in transition. And I pray, God, so are you. And you'll know whether you're in transition because as you hear of Jesus, you say, I want to be like him, not because I have to to get in with God, but because he has freed me, because he has served me, it delights my heart. I know I can't pay it back, but I want to be like the image that he has made me to be. I want to be a servant. And as I thought this through, I'm like, Lord, please, get the process going a bit faster. Please, I need your saving work again and again and again and then as I look at Jesus and I see how he gave away everything for me and how he craved after serving me I begin to get it and I begin to want it more and more and more and you see what he gave away don't you all the things that I cling on to he gave away what do I cling on to I cling on to stability do you of course you do it's what all the psychology textbooks write about you the thing that you want is to know where you stand and how you work you want stability you want the right people around you to give you that. You want the right amount of money to provide for that. You want all of that stability. Did Jesus have stability? No, he went from stability to instability. He never had a home. He never had a place to rest his head. He had an increasing number of enemies coming against him. He had no, no stability. What else do we want? We want comfort. And I want comfort. And there's nothing wrong with comfort. But I want to eat in the best places. I want to drive the shiniest cars. I want to be able to, at the end of the day, kick back on a sofa that is comfy. And here's the Lord Jesus Christ who went, moved away from comfort, the glories of heaven. He was born in a stable. He could have, if he'd chosen to, be born in a palace. But he went into a stable. So he could associate with the lowest. He, he moved from place to place with no comfort at all. You know, foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He moved the opposite direction. What about vindication? You know, we want stability. We want comfort. We want we want to have a reputation that stands up. We want vindication. You know, Jesus was never recognised before the cross. The religious leaders of the day laughed at him and mocked him. He was the one who associated with tax collectors and sinners. He never wrote a book or anything like that. He wasn't recognised. And all of those things that he was prepared to give away, I crave. I want to be noticed. I want to be successful. I want to be comfortable. I want to be respected. And I spend so much of my time clinging on to that and trying to establish that. But what Jesus did was he came and gave it all away to get me. Wow. What did you do it for, Jesus? 
I'm really not worth it. He gave it all away to get me. I've already told you the summary of point three, but I'm not going to miss it out because it's too exciting. Why did Jesus do it? Why did Jesus come? Why did God come? Why did he serve? Answer verse eight to save. Let's look at it here. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, I've already hinted at this, and this is because I'm getting ahead of myself because I'm so excited about getting this across to you, but I just want you to think for a second. He could have become the most powerful human ever, couldn't he? Nebuchadnezzar, King Belshazzar, the others we've been hearing about, sheer wimps. He could have had total dominion over everybody. He could have enforced it. In fact, Satan tried to get him to do it that way, didn't he? But he didn't. He didn't come. He didn't just become a carrot or a servant, no. He also became... He's not literally a carrot. I hope you realize I'm saying that. He carried on himself the shame of death on the cross. So he went down to be us, down to be a servant, down to go to the shame of the cross. He gave away all of that power. Now I want you to think about what was going on. Why did that have to happen? It wasn't just that he was just trying to, how can I be the most low? No, there was method there. There was a reason behind it. Now think what the cross was. In the first century, the cross was the place where rebels and criminals against the state went to face their... um, Uh, the consequences of their arrogance. Why do I say that? If you're a state and you're an authority, somebody comes along to you and says, I'm not going to stand, do it your way. I want to be able to call the shots in my life. I want to be in charge. What you have to say to be that, to be a rebel against the state, is you have to say, I'm superior, I'm better, I'm grasping after something more, and your rules, you will not contain me, I defy you. I'm bigger, I'm better, I defy you. And that was why the Roman authorities, and it was very cruel and very ugly, and I'm not saying they were right to do it, but that was why crucifixion was the most common uh, means of executing um, uh, a rebel or a criminal. Because it was putting them in their place. It was giving them the place that their choices and their actions deserved. You try and say something big about yourself when you're actually small, I'm going to show you how small you are. It is the natural consequence of arrogance and pride. It was giving them the natural consequences of their sense of superiority after grasping after themselves. And it was hell. It was shame. It was the ultimate being put down in your place. That's what crucifixion was. And in the Bible, crucifixion is always a picture of what awaits any of us who have done the same thing to God. you see that? It is a picture of hell itself. It's a picture of being shamed for all those who have acted up in the world where God is the king and defied him and lived to serve themselves and grasped after his identity and used other people to get ahead to do it. The cross stands as a picture of what is awaiting us and it's a lost eternity. And Jesus, who is God, would have been well within his rights and his power to say, off you go. Go to that cross because you've stood against me. What little privilege I've given you've used for yourselves. You have defied me. You've lived as if I don't. There you go. Off you go. 
There's the consequence of your rebellion against me and living this attitude of self-service. Living in a reverse Jesus. Every selfish act is about to be shown up for how foolish it was. And he had the power to do that. Please don't think he doesn't. He had the power to do that and still does. But instead, look at this. And I want to get this. It's brilliant. Verse 8. But being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. He had the power to make us obedient to death and death on the cross, but instead, he went and did it. Instead of using his power to destroy us, he uses his power to save, even though it would destroy him in the process. That's what the cross is about. So this message is fundamentally isn't about you trying to follow Jesus and be a better person. Fundamentally, this message from Philippians chapter 2 here is about something that has done for you so that you could be released from that old, broken, upside-down humanity we've been living in. And so I, again, I've got another quote which I think was helpful. To take our place, he'd have to be a man because only God can die under the judgment of God. But to take out judgment for us, he'd have to be God, because only God has no judgment of his own to pay. So Jesus, being fully God, became fully man to become our substitute when he died on the cross under God the Father's judgment. And as you receive that, as you make that the mark and the shape of your life, It changes you. When you see him laying aside his power, and using his power not to oppress you, but to liberate you, it changes you. I told you the story um, that came up in a film recently. It was a foreign language film. It was called The Three Seasons, and it had got a number of different stories in it um, that talked about life uh, in in one way or another. And one of the stories was set in Vietnam. Uh, One of the characters in there was uh, a rickshaw driver, you know those little bikes that have got the seats on the back, so it was sort of like a Vietnamese equivalent of a taxi driver. Uh, and his name um, was Hai. And then there was another character in there, and she was a, a lady, she was very beautiful in form, she had big ambitions, and the way she tried to get her ambitions was she um, became a prostitute to get a f- uh, fund her ability to move up the social ladder. But as time went by, she got more and more trapped in it. And the, the sense of this story is these two characters who both have very deep desires. For High, the rickshaw driver, the object of his desire was lie. She was beautiful. She wanted, he wanted to be with her. He wanted to marry her, but he knew he had no chance. How could he get anywhere near her? He didn't have the kind of power that could get an angle on her or persuade her that he was worth being anywhere near. Lie, well, she, she used to, when it was hard for her, she would be a prostitute. She'd get taken to these very fancy hotels. She would be paid a certain amount of money, which was well beyond um, high at the time. She would be paid a certain amount of money, but before the end of every evening, she wasn't allowed to stay in the hotel. After she had done her business, she would be sent away, and she never got to wake up in those beautiful silk, um, uh, the, the silk sheets. And she longed, she longed to be in a world where she was safe and secure and could wake up the next morning in that place. Whilst the film goes on, you find that um, High, he enters a rickshaw race. I can only imagine what one of those would look like. You know, you've got your bike and you've got your feet and people on the back. And there's a rickshaw race and against all the odds, he wins it. And the result of winning it is a big cash prize. 
And he's sitting there and he's like, finally, I have some money. I've never been able to get some together. It was a significant amount of money. I now have a measure, a modicum of power to my name. What am I going to do with it? So he goes to see Lie. And he pays for a night with her. He's going to get the object of his desire. But something happens. You know, Lie knew that Hi was after her, and Lie goes to the room in the same hotel. He paid for the hotel. And when they get there, he just says, Go to sleep. She thinks it's a trick. What's going on? What's he going to do to me? Is he going to abuse me? Pay for the hotel room, I pay for your time, go to sleep. Because all I wanted to do was watch her go to sleep. She wakes up the next morning and finds that he's not there, but she's woken up in the room that she'd always dreamed of. You see, Hi had her in his power, but rather than use his power to oppress, manipulate, and press down, he used his power and privilege to liberate her, to give her her dream, to set her free to some degree. And the story is wonderful because it goes on from there and shows how once she'd experienced that, she couldn't go back to her own old way of life. Her experience of that grace, of one using power that could have been to exploit, but instead was to rescue, changed her from the inside out. And her life, in some sense, she was converted to something. She was made new, she was liberated and set free. And that is what is going on here. The Lord Jesus Christ gave up his rights, though he is God. He let aside his power, and he went into the mess at great cost to himself to give us the eternal benefits. That's the kind of servant he is. And as that happens, you want to start being it too, don't you? You want to be somebody who uses your power, your opportunities, your privilege to bring rescue into the life of others. And this wonderful um, bit of the Bible gives us a direction to that. Does this mean we should all become street sweepers, pack up our jobs and go and serve the community that way? No, 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 no. What is the direction of travel, of the service that Jesus does for us? It's for our eternal well-being. And if anybody has experienced Christ changing their eternal well-being, they'll have a desire in them to be busy serving, even at cost to themselves, so that the people around them have the privilege and opportunity of having their eternal well-being dealt with. Salvation. And so when it comes to opening the Noah's, we know what we've got to do now. We're not just there to serve and put on a nice cafe, because a nice cafe is a nice place to go and speak. Anybody can do that. But as we serve and put on a nice cafe and put in that privilege in place, we're doing it with the daily prayer every day. Lord, please, don't let this stop at Mary and Mary, a cup of tea being poured. Please, Lord, use this in some way so I can build a relationship into somebody's life so that I can tell them about Jesus and so that more than just having a cup of tea to warm them up for half a day, they meet with the Saviour of the universe and have their eternal destiny changed. You see that? So it helps put constraints on, helps helps us set priorities. What shall we use that time and opportunity for? Answer... It is for the eternal well-being of other people. So if somebody comes up to you and says, Steve, I want you to do this. I want you to mend me fridge. Say, that's great. I'm, okay, I don't think I've necessarily got an obligation. It might be a nice loving thing to do. But if somebody comes up to me and says, Steve, tell me about Jesus. I'm like, I don't care what I'm doing. I'm going to stop that and tell you about Jesus. You get the idea? It's about our eternal well-being. And so that's who he is. He forgot all the Lord Jesus, forgot all the jockeying for position, he gives it all up and he says now that because of that you lot, you can forget your 
jockeying and cooking up some sense of value and significance through vain glory. Remember we learned about that last week? You don't need to use your time doing that. You don't need to make, do things to make yourself feel valuable and precious. Why? Because Jesus died for you. That is a declaration of your value. If you know Jesus died for you, it means that you matter. It means that you have been given glory. It means that when other people's opinions are seem to be a threat against you, or you're worried about what people think, whether you've done this or not done that, and their approval, you can sit back and go, I don't need to waste my time and energy thinking about this one, because I know that Jesus Christ's opinion has been written over me. I was lost, but he has saved me. I am both simultaneously a sinner and been made new. I've got an amazing status. I'm humble, but I'm so confident in Jesus. He has been released. And I wanted to stand at the front and wave my arms over you and go, Release! Because some of you need to know that, don't you? I don't get to do that. Pentecostals with a really nice suit do they get to do that. But I don't get to do that. But you get the idea. As we meet Jesus here, stuff gets left behind. The trash, the rubbish, the junk gets pushed aside. We become different. We become like him. We get to use our time not to pursue our rights, our privileges, our opportunities, our well-being. We get to do it for others. And I love the fact that that's at work in our church. I love the fact that I can see some of you who are working really hard to be generous so we can afford to employ another full-time elder. That won't happen unless people from here choose to go without that so they can help do gospel work. It's a choice. Some people are going to downgrade their TV packages. Some people are going to put their holidays on hold. Some people are going to do all of that. Some people here are going to do that so we can have a new elder. And that's so exciting. Alan was at the front here. Twelve years now, I think it is, he's been doing Speed Kids. Andrea, Helen with him. Others of you have joined in and worked along the way. Faithfully, he could have been kicking back, eating his tea, but he was here for the eternal well-being of the youngsters. Some of us give money to missionaries. Some of us just take that precious time out to pray. They put it in, we put it in the diary and we say, I'm not going to do this so I can pray. I've got the right to do this. But I love people and their eternal well-being, so I'm going to pray. I'm going to be like Jesus. Some of you change your holiday plans so you can go and help out at a camp in the summer. You could kick back in front of the telly or go and do whatever it is, go for walks in the park or end up at some sunny spot like Banga Regis. Uh, no, not Bangor, Lyme Regis or Banga. Get it right. But you don't. You put your holiday plans on, on hold because of Jesus in your life. Some of you reject your diary. Some of you say, you know what, I know it's a really good thing to kick back on the telly on Sunday night, but I'm going to make it to the prayer meeting, I'm going to go and be trained, or I'm going to drop my kids off at this. Because eternal well-being is more important and more precious than anything else. What is happening whenever you do that? I'll tell you what's happening. It's verse 5. Have this mind in you which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's in action and it can be seen. And we should be encouraged. But why more, don't we? We want more of him as Lord at work in us. Because the final result, and I'll miss most of this out, but I've got to get you to this bit. The final result is verses 9 through to 11, is that God will vindicate and show that he has always and will always um, oppose the proud but give grace and privilege and position to the humble. Therefore God exalted to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. If you're a proud person, God goes after you, to flatten you, and oppose you, and make life difficult. It might fly for a while, but sooner or later it will flatten. But if you're somebody who is humble, 
and serves and gives, eventually you get lifted up. No more so than the Lord Jesus, because he went to the ultimate humbling, and he will get the ultimate status. So the question, according to the Bible, is not, will you meet Jesus? It's, when will you meet Jesus? Every man and his dog will one day bow the knee before Jesus. We can do it either now, knowing him as our Lord and our Saviour, the one renewing us, forgiving us our sin, giving us a future destiny, know him as Saviour now, or else we can meet him then as the ultimate judge who has the power to flatten people who have lived selfishly and been God-clamorous and trouble. Um, you serve God. And the day comes and says that one day, every, Jesus, wonderful one day, every day, everybody will see him. And for his people who have turned and know something of his grace, he will bring them with him and we will share in some of the splendour which is his. I cannot believe that that will get written and given to me. But it will. And so does it matter? Does it matter how we respond to this message of Jesus who came to die on the cross? Of course it matters. It tells us that Jesus has to be number one. Jesus is. We can't get away from that. He is God. He's been here, he's been seen, he has been crucified, and he has been raised from the dead, and we cannot argue with that, which doesn't leave us any room for being either atheists or agnostics. It doesn't leave any room for our families and our neighbours around here. We've got to get out and to speak and tell them. We've got to tell them that you are going to meet this Jesus one day. Meet him now as your saviour. It will be costly for us. But that's why this series is called Together for the Gospel, because if we stand together and encourage one another together, and we have this mindset together, to put our own self-interest privilege and our own petty significances aside and become servants, then we will look different. We will react differently. Our actions will be seen. Our words will be seen. The values we live for will be seen. And people will come to know of Jesus, now as Saviour rather than as Judge. So where do we leave this morning? I thank you for your patience. This one's been doing a number on me. I think the place where we're supposed to be left with this is that we're supposed to be left saying, wow, isn't he amazing? Isn't he worth praising? Haven't we got a saviour who is great? So we've got a couple of songs now. Koshi's going to pray for us now while the musicians get ready. We've got a couple of songs and a time to pray and sing and just praise him for all that he's done for us.